All right, we are recording. So welcome everyone. Thanks everyone for coming to talk to Amari Walker today. We're gonna to be chatting about environmental engineering and microplastics, so I'm pretty excited. And thanks again, Erin, for being on today to translate for us. But yeah, welcome Amari. Hi, nice to be here. <laughs> yeah, so um, I would love to hear, I know you've sent a little bio for the Skype of Scientist page, but um, we would love to hear a little bit of like what you do and kind of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so my name is Amari. I am a fifth year PhD student in environmental engineering at Duke, and I study chemicals that are associated to plastic and microplastics and how they can be potentially harmful to our bodies, like endocrine disruptors or things that can mimic hormones and affect our reproductive systems, uh, and how they can transform in water or just like the effect or how much is being released over time. So that's what I mostly do for research. And then um, before I was at Duke for my PhD, I was at the University of California, Berkeley, doing marine science as a bachelor's degree. So I went from marine science to becoming an environmental engineer. And so that was an interesting transition as well. And then I also have a YouTube channel, which I think I need to post in the chat as well for, for you all if you want to check it out and subscribe. I'd love that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank you. Um, and then, yeah, I guess uh, just to jump off of that, kind of that transition from a marine biology uh, bachelor's degree to environmental engineering, how did that, how did that happen? So it actually happened when I was doing my study abroad trip in Tahiti. That was my, I believe my third or fourth year of, of my um, undergrad degree. And I was, you know, I was really enjoying the work, but I realized that I wanted to do something a little different. And I was noticing that people were getting sick from the water that they were drinking, like my colleagues that were there. And so it just brought to me like a lot of questions about water quality. And some of the projects for my study abroad program, we were required to kind of create our own research project surrounding like what was happening on the island um, in, in Morea, French Polynesia. And one of the questions I wanted to answer was how tr the burning of trash, which is like a pretty common occurrence on that island, was affecting like lichen populations and like because they're indicators of like smoke and trash um, burning. And so those those questions of like air quality and water quality were, were already kind of piquing my interest more and more. And so that was when I was like, okay, I already know I'm gonna go to graduate school because I had been preparing for it for a few years and been a, a part of a few programs pushing me in that direction. Uh, and so the, the question was in what and in, in how to get it done. And so after kind of reviewing all the different majors and options I could do, I thought environmental engineering offered me a huge, you know, interdisciplinary opportunity for me to really delve into chemistry, um, concepts of math and physics and just geology. There's just so many different interdisciplinary subjects in environmental engineering and would allow me to get certain accreditations like getting a professional engineering certification if I wanted that. So I thought that just opened a lot of doors for job opportunities and for me to continue learning in so many different aspects. Um, so once I decided environmental engineering, it was the question of, do I have the coursework necessary? Um, because it's very different to do marine science. Well, not necessarily very different, but they, they have different qualifications required. Uh, so that's why I ended up taking a fifth year of my undergrad degree because I wanted to get the coursework and just feel a little bit more confident when I was applying to my PhD. 
in retrospective, I probably didn't have to do that, but I think it really helped me um, feel a little bit more confident and comfortable with the coursework. So I ended up taking some of the environmental engineering classes at the University of California, Berkeley. I did math classes up to multivariable calculus, linear algebra, and then I also took some computer science courses that were suited for engineers and, you know, just a few more, you know, intensive courses just to feel more comfortable with coding and with the science. So that was kind of like my transition into, okay, I think I'm ready to be an environmental engineer now. Gotcha. Cool. Um, and kind of off of that, someone's asking, like, what's the difference or how would you describe the difference between environmental science and environmental engineering? Because um, it sounds like, like, obviously, there's going to be a little bit more math in the engineering part, but kind of how does how do those split? Yeah, the they, they are they have like slight differences. I would say that you could probably do most of everything in either one of the majors that you choose. I think you probably have a little bit more opportunity for uh, like higher paying jobs with environmental engineering. Um, usually it, when you finish an environmental engineering like undergraduate degree, you go into becoming like a facilities engineer where you make sure that like the, the industry is, you know, within the limits of like how good their water is or like how much waste they're emitting. Um, or you, you know, work in the air on the air side or just hazardous waste or trash management. For environmental science, you get a little bit more freedom just exploring like everything that's happening in the environment and maybe even the economics associated to it. So there, there are like slight differences, but if you're, if you have a general interest in the environment, you could probably do any of them in either one of the majors. But yeah, there's definitely a, a larger requirement for math and like differential equations, multivariable calculus. The kind of modeling things are definitely going to be more in the engineering side. Gotcha. Um, and then from there, so someone's asking, they want more detail on that study abroad project that you kind of mentioned. Like talk about the lichens a little bit is what they asked. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that interesting, the lichen project was the one I really wanted to do, but it didn't work out. So the project or the study abroad program is specifically for the University of California, Berkeley. It is a 13 unit class for a letter grade and they basically prepare you to be an independent researcher. You, you spend a few weeks on campus learning everything about the island of Morea, which is right next to Tahiti, and you prepare to think about like what kind of research questions have not been answered, whether that is you know, in the coastal area of that island or within the middle of, of the island in the forest and the stream ecology. So when you get there, you spend a few weeks investigating all parts of, you know, the, the reefs, of the inner parts of the forest, to even the shoreline, and then you come up with three proposed topics for uh, a research. Um, and it has to be feasible within like a six-week time frame to be able to do. And so, you know, you kind of decide like this is, these are the three I think are the most interesting to me. I've done reading on things that have been previously done on this island. And then you have a four professors and then three graduate students that are there as well. And then the entire group of students as well review your entire proposal and decide what's the most feasible. So the lichen one was the one I was really interested in, like the burning of trash, um, because inevitably that relates back to plastic pollution. They had a lot of plastic trash there. Uh, but it was a little bit too dangerous to be going into people's backyards and like standing near an open fire. 
So didn't end up working out the way I wanted it to, but it, I ended up doing something on the shoreline instead and studying how the decomposition of uh, different parts of algae were changing the composition of like the insects, um, the marine and terrestrial insects that were eating it and um, decomposing it. So interesting. I was a little bit on both the shore and uh, the terrestrial area. And Lots of bugs. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, and uh, so basically you're talking about like being excited about that question. Have you kind of always been interested in being a scientist and like kind of what was your like inspiration to pursue uh, marine science and then environmental engineering? I, yeah, I would definitely say I've been interested in science since I was really young. I think my family exposed me to a lot of space camp, science camp, even like uh, I think I went to a medicine camp in, at one point in the summer. Um, and so I had a lot of exposure to, to math and science. I was even doing math classes, I think, on the weekends at one point. So I, I, I kind of always knew I wanted to do something in the science realm. I think initially it was, I'm going to be a doctor. And so I was, I was trying to go down that route for especially during high school. But when I got to college, I just realized that like I had like a much wider interest than um, medicine and I wanted to go into just kind of more general like science like either biology or marine science and when I was applying to colleges I really wanted marine biology specifically uh, but Berkeley didn't offer that um, they had marine science instead so it was a little less bio focused but I I think that was good for me because I realized I'm not like a creature person like <laughs> I think it took swimming in uh, the coastal reefs to learn that, like, I'm like, oh, there's an eel. Oh my god, there's an eel! <laughs> I love eels, but I've never swum next to one, so maybe I would change my mind. <laughs> Let me tell you, when they stare you in the eye, it does something to you. Like, this is the top predator in the sea that I'm in right now. Like... <laughs> <laughs> you can bite my thumb off. Um, yeah, I mean, they're super pretty and they're cool. And then, I, you know, it freaked me out when I realized that they lived both in the streams and in the ocean. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> everywhere. Um, but the, there was another question in there. I, I think I got lost in the sauce about um, just a passion for science, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think some of the earliest stories of how I got super interested in science, I think I wrote a small blog about it on my website, which was damariwalker.com. But it was uh, when I had to kiss a banana slug. And that was an interesting experience. I think it was fifth grade science camp where they made us go on a nature walk and learn how to do, be sustainable by like eating an entire apple instead of like leaving apple core waste in the environment. And then like, I think towards the end of the trip, it was like, okay, you're going to learn about the properties of the mucus of a banana slug by actually getting interactive with it and kissing it and letting your lips get numb. And I was like, nope, oh my God. <laughs> not me. <laughs> Why me? But, um, you know, I did it and it was super cool to like physically interact with a science, scientific property. So I think that was definitely one where I was like, yeah, this thing's cool and I'm gonna watch Animal Planet every day and Discovery Channel every day and keep learning about more science. <laughs> I'm surprised uh, like a fifth grade camp counselor was like okay with uh, having a bunch of fifth graders put their mouth on a banana slug, but. Pre-COVID, pre-COVID. <laughs> um, 
And kind of talking, you were talking too about, so you're, you mentioned your fifth year, right? In your PhD? Yes. Yeah. So do you, I guess people are kind of curious what kind of uh, jobs you're interested in and what kind of jobs like environmental engineering prepares you for? Yeah. The, uh, I think there's definitely a little bit of difference. Like if you're going for like a master's up to a master's for environmental engineering versus like a PhD. I think when you get a PhD, you open the doors to, if you want to be a professor and go into academia. Um, if you want to be a science advisor, like in, that can just be like advising policy changes, like for plastic pollution, like that's something that definitely interests me. Um, to even working in a higher level in industry to kind of like motivate different product innovations um, or beyond like a facilities team to make sure that if they are managing, you know, making chips, like at Intel, I worked, I did an internship at Intel before I started at, at Duke. And so I was a facilities engineer and I was learning the process of like, well, they produce waste when they're making these chips or these fobs. Um, and I have to make sure that the, the waste meets the requirements and that we're not going over or under associated to like the EPA. Uh, and just making sure that if there was any hazardous spills, there was an environmental engineer on site that could, you know, maintain it and do all the paperwork and um, making sure that permits were still up to date. So those kinds of things you can definitely do on like an industry side, or you can go into consulting. Whenever there is a huge event that happens around our country, you're always going to require some kind of environmental engineer because let's think about the oil and gas spills. Like you need an environmental engineer to make sure that the site of like the ocean is like properly cleaned up and like there's no other chemicals that are harming the wildlife there or uh like hurricane laura i just did a video of this on my youtube channel how that big huge like cat four storm uh actually caused an industrial fire and that released chlorine gas into the atmosphere and then it deposited or diluted itself in the water uh, like right next to that that fire in lake charles and so the question of well okay, great, it's out of our air. Well, what about what's happening in our water now? How do we make sure that this is still safe? Maybe not just for us as humans, but also for anything else that's living there. Um, because, you know, humans disrupt a lot of uh, environmental processes. And so we got to figure out how to remediate that. Or if there's a radiation site, it's like making sure that they're still, you know, they're not contaminating other areas and like leaching out into other places. So Consulting is a big area that you could definitely get into for environmental engineering because we are going to keep continue making millions and millions of chemicals and we don't know the effects of a lot of them. And we will need someone to make sure that they can, you know, manage or understand what's present and remediate it if necessary with either like microbial means. So part of environmental engineering means you can also be some kind of microbiologist and do some bioinformatics stuff to either like consume the chemicals like uh, PCB or even like plastic. I think they're trying to design microbes that can consume plastic. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's tons of options. There's tons of job, job options. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, yeah, as a personal interest in plastic pollution, I think that's awesome. <laughs> um, and then so kind of asking about your job in general, so some people are curious, what's the hardest part of being like an environmental engineer and being an environmental engineer, like environmental engineering PhD student and what's your like favorite part? Okay. Um, for like my degree, the environmental engineering side I'm most like into is like chemistry, analytical chemistry. 
so I think learning environmental analytical chemistry and like using like these $1 million instruments to like understand what's present in our water or that's being leached out of plastic, like that's a huge learning curve for me for the past few years of just kind of getting up to speed with um, how to do these things. So I think that has been one of the largest challenges is, is getting the techniques down, understanding the, the research behind it. Um, because I, I think I had a little bit of imposter syndrome with chemistry, uh, which is interesting because I started out as a chemistry major at Berkeley before I switched to marine science. So full loop back and now I'm a chemist. Uh, so I think that maybe that was more mental than anything uh, for like the most challenging. I think the coursework can be challenging for certain subjects, especially the ones that are a little bit more um, multivariable calculus intensive, but having a good team of people that you're studying with can help fill in the gaps and like teach you in a way that maybe the instructor is not able to reach um, for yourself. So I think that was probably another challenge that I was working with and had uh, really wonderful friends and uh, colleagues helping me along the way. And then for the best parts, oh my gosh, this, this is like great. <laughs> I think the, the best part of my PhD right now is, is, is this year because I now feel like I have enough knowledge to kind of talk to people about the science and really share with them like the things I've been working on with plastic and you know getting people to think about being more sustainable or talking to their uh, you know government representatives about you know being doing a little bit more with legislation or even like pressuring industry to have better alternatives and create circular economies for plastic I I I, I think that the once you get past the you know okay how do I learn how to be a PhD student how do I learn how to do all this stuff and um, it, it just becomes a lot more exciting to have the ability to talk about it or feel comfortable to talk about it. No, that's true. I'm in the early, like, can't <laughs> talk about it yet stage. So that's awesome. Um, so then off of that, it's kind of asking a little bit more about your personal, like, research. Uh, people are curious, like, what, maybe, like, describe one of your research projects that you've been working on and, like, they want to know, how long you've been working on it and kind of like you mentioned your team too like how many people do you work on and like who are they yeah the uh, okay I, I also have a great video on on all of my projects but i can tell you a little bit about each of them so to get a phd you have to have three chapters that you publish some people have uh, a phd where they just build on to each part of their research so that it becomes a more complete story I think I have more of a three separate chunks that all fit into the story of chemicals and plastic. Mm -hmm. uh, the first project is one I've been working on since my first year. So it's been almost four years now, uh, which is a plastic called epoxy. And that's what lines the cans of like your Coca-Cola bottle or like a can of beans. Like that is usually what epoxy is. Or even on the floor, sometimes we have like certain kinds of floors that are shiny and they are usually uh, sealed with an epoxy. But that epoxy is made out of a chemical called bisphenol A. Now, if you've heard of BPA-free, you know, anything, water bottles, baby toys, baby bottles, it's because they've been working to try and get it out of uh, circulation, but it's everywhere. Even when you get a receipt, you probably get the most exposure when you touch that receipt because it can absorb into your skin and into your bloodstream. Uh, so, 
bisphenol A is a problem because it's an endocrine disruptor. So it, it can have harm to uh, just any part of the reproductive process and uh, is a suspected carcinogen, hasn't been proved, but it's, it's just not a great chemical uh, to interact with. And what I'm trying to understand is the release of that compound along with a few others into what would be like a freshwater environment. If you dump, if you improperly dump LaCroix bottle uh, in, you know, a stream, how much is likely to get released into that stream? Or, um, or even if you expose that bottle to light, how does that change the amount that's being released or the changes to the compounds? So that's kind of one thing. <laughs> and even um, if it becomes a microplastic. So I, I sometimes take that plastic that I've made and turn it into microplastics and say, hey, it's smaller now. Does that make a difference? Does that mean that more BPA is going to come out? And uh, yeah, so it's just a bunch of different kinds of benchtop experiments to understand the release. The uh, second, the other project I'll, I'll mention is with a, let's see, what's another one? Um, okay, is with a stomach. So birds, birds and fish, they are sometimes attracted to plastic in our environment like bottle caps, um, anything they, they can just commonly end up interacting with, or like our expanded polystyrene, our foam containers that we end up using for takeout. So when they consume them, they can end up in their gut, and we don't know exactly what chemicals are present in these plastics and like how interacting with like a very acidic uh, gut would allow certain compounds that are also endocrine disruptors uh, to be released. So. Um, I work with a colleague who had already done a simulated bird and fish uh, stomach digest, and he put 16 commonly found plastic items on the beach, which are all mostly single use. That's like our straws, our, uh, I think even balloons, strings, shopping bags, uh, you name it. They, he put them in these simulated experiments to see how much of certain kinds of chemicals were being released. And then what I did was I took that, that digest and what I'm trying to do is called high resolution mass spectrometry. So I'm trying to identify unknown, unknown chemicals. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's a lot of forensic science in a way because we don't know really what's in there and we don't know how that could have changed in the presence of all of this uh, acid. And so I'm, I'm just doing a little bit of investigation to identify those and then prove which chemicals are endocrine disruptors. Yeah, so that's awesome. two projects. <laughs> yeah, really cool. Um, and you mentioned that you have like in-depth uh, project descriptions in your YouTube channel, right? Yes. Awesome. Yes. Well, cool. Everyone should go check those out. I feel like I, I need to also. Um, and so someone's also maybe like talk a little bit more about, you mentioned like your motivation to becoming an environmental engineer, kind of your study abroad, but is it, yeah, like what kind of keeps you going in environmental engineering and like kind of what career maybe are you looking at after PhD? Yeah, that's kind of something I'm still investigating and exploring, but I, I think that I really enjoy the kind of coursework that I'm exposed to and the kind of researchers um, by choosing environmental engineering specifically. Uh, I don't, maybe I think I would also consider doing some more of a consultant, some consulting realm around just like remediation for like our water or anything else that's happening in our environment. Uh, but I'm starting to get more interested in policy. I'm starting to get uh, 
a little bit of also interest in like continuing this research to still trying to like identify things that are in our water. Um, Cause I think water quality is something that's always been on my mind and I, I don't ever want to stray from it uh, as much as I love plastic. It's going to be here forever, but I also really enjoy just understanding our water and how we can improve it. So I think that's probably where the environmental engineering aspect is going to stay with me forever. <laughs> cool. Um, and then kind of off talking about like you mentioned like ocean pollution and things like that. Do you have any like tips or ideas of someone's asking like how do we how can we reduce waste in the ocean and maybe like personal steps that people on here could take? Yeah, uh, I think there's a really great figure um, with this uh, international advocacy organization called Oceana. Uh, you, you all can uh, search, search them, they're great. But they, they show this figure of every minute a truckload of plastic waste is being thrown into our oceans. And somewhere by 2050, we're going to have 12 billion tons uh, in our oceans if we do nothing at all. So the, the question is also, what kind of plastic is it? And usually when you look at a beach cleanup, which is a great opportunity for if anybody's you know, near a coast or even near some kind of waterway like a stream or a lake, there's always some kind of plastic pollution. So doing some, some form of a cleanup is always a great way to do your part. Uh, but the, the common things that are found on those, on those like shorelines are single use plastic waste that, you know, that's our straws. And now even like our gloves, <clears throat> like those, those single use gloves or like our disposable uh, masks, um, those are showing up more and more on the beach. I mean, I run into them all the time when I'm on my way to lab. I notice, um, you know, just the single-use mask on the ground. So those, those are things that we can probably work on changing for ourselves, like trying to get more cotton, cotton gloves or just like reusable masks. I wear, uh, if I ever feel like I need a glove, I, I bought on Amazon like these eczema gloves. Uh, and so they're just washable, they're cotton, and then you can just reuse them over and over again as you need them. Um, so unless you're like actually in like, you know, doing research or like the medical field where you need like a nitrile glove, I think going towards that is still probably a good idea. And then um, just looking for, for better options for reusables. So bringing your own reusable bag, uh, bringing your own uh, mug, <laughs> whether that's your water jug, this is like a liter, and then uh, your coffee, I, I live with these. Um, <laughs> and, and even like, one of the things we don't think about is like clothing. That one's a hard one. We still, I think in the microplastics world, we debate that pretty, pretty widely, whether you should stop wearing plastic clothing. And by plastic, I mean polyester, rayon, nylon, those are, those are polymers. Um, or should you switch to like linen and cotton? And because the, the thing is, is that they all release microfibers and they all release different amounts of microfibers that we don't know the impact of on our environment. But uh, I think the, I think it, it's better to kind of focus on how often you wash your clothes. Um, how are you using cold versus hot? How intensive is your detergent? Does your detergent have microplastics? Which sometimes they do. Um, so like being more aware of like those kinds of things, are you line drying? Because whether you wash or whether you, you know, you can wash things and then if you throw them in the dryer, they're all emitting some form of microplastics. Your lint is microplastics. Um, so yeah, just being a little bit more conscious about our washing procedures and maybe having a better variety in clothing options 
but you know, I think there's a lot of things that are difficult to do and that aren't really accessible sometimes if you want to be a full plastic free sustainable warrior. And I, you know, I, I think that those are great things to strive for, but sometimes aren't very realistic. And so really fighting for policy change on a larger level and like industry to actually take back the plastic items that they give to us uh, for so cheap and remake them into the same product or a different product is probably a better option for all of us. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I think you're totally right. Like educate yourself as much and like, it's really hard to not use any plastic, but try your best to, yeah, bring a reusable water bottle or um, make sure you like, yeah, get a cotton mask, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, small things make a big difference and just being a little bit more aware um, because it's not easy. We, we, we haven't made it very easy for us to, to veer away from all plastic, but maybe buying in bulk more if you have that available to you. Yeah. But yeah, um, get rid of the water bottles. <laughs> yeah, true. I, I think even just like it's easier to carry one of the reusable water bottles because it has like a little loop or something. Just, yeah, make it easier. Usually those like, uh, I'm forgetting the Nalgene brand isn't too expensive, so. Yeah, and like, if you feel like you need to get like a single use bottle at one point, you just get stuck at the airport or something, try and find ones that have the cap tethered to them. Mm -hmm. um, because those caps are usually what are consumed by like birds and fish. Like I think the al albatross, um, maybe I'm not saying them right, but uh, they're the ones that keep like getting it stuck in their gut and their species are, you know, really impacted by plastic pollution and waste. So, you know, I don't really advocate for single use plastic, but like, you know, things happen. It's, it's natural. This is the world we live in, yeah. but we got to make small steps to make it better. Yeah. And someone's asking, so like on the, on the positive note, like how can we um, inform other people about uh, plastic pollution and water pollution? Yeah. Uh, great things are to actually just kind of share content with people or uh, invite your social network to do like a sustainability challenge. Like, Hey, like for 30 days, I'm going to do a waste audit. And like, I invite you all to do that as well. Like, let's take note of like how much plastic waste that we are putting, putting into our environment or how much did I recycle? Um, or even just like chatting with your county about, are you doing more recyclables? Are you doing more composting of plastic? So I, I think sharing with your circle resources and then even you can share them my microplastics video. It's entertaining um, and they have a lot of fun with that. So it's always a great option if people want to do that. Uh, but yeah, like I think providing people pamphlets, resources, and inviting them to try things that they hadn't done before uh, can, can really motivate people to, to get excited, like a plastic cleanup. Mm -hmm. I know I like that idea of like those like 30 day challenge things like people put like for like workouts, but just do it like plastic pollution instead. Yeah, even like to go, like I think a lot of us are doing takeout, you know, with the pandemic. But in, and sometimes they actually end up putting utensils that you don't need. Most of us are eating at home. Why are we getting all these plastic utensils and then all of these extra little packets of, you know, like ketchup or soy sauce, like maybe doing the challenge where you take a picture of all of the single use plastic waste that you got associated to, you know, your to go container, because sometimes these, uh, you know, these companies or these, these restaurants don't realize that you don't need that and they don't really leave you an option to opt out or even 
opt in. I think it would be a lot better if we had restaurants that had the option where do you need a utensil and you have to physically press yes versus them just automatically giving us all the single use waste. Yeah, no, that's cool. That, I like it. I'm going to have to keep an eye on my, uh, my like takeout intake now. Yeah, it's something I want to do too. If everybody's excited about it, we could just do it together. Like every Friday we'll We'll all order takeout and we'll just share all of the, the plastic waste that we got. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, and kind of, so like now from a different perspective, people are kind of just asking some questions about you. Um, so if you weren't a scientist, what do you think that you would be doing? Mm. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, my family's full of lawyers, but I don't think I would be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> I think I would probably gear towards, I, I, I do enjoy like the entertainment aspect of like communicating things. So maybe like a news anchor or like reporter, I think that sounds kind of awesome. Uh, or even trying to start some of some kind of my own business. Maybe it wouldn't be, if it wasn't science, some kind of, uh, I guess you can't say tech cause it's still science, but <laughs> I kind of like the idea of something of owning something that's mine and trying to give back to the community in some way that I can. So if it wasn't science, it would be some kind of social justice aspect. Yeah. And then, um, some more like stuff that stuff about you. So someone's asking, do you have any like passion projects or cool hobbies that you want to share? My, the majority of my time these days is making those videos on YouTube. Uh, I think I started in May when I started my YouTube channel. So I think that's led to like my hobby of like graphic design and like video editing and like learning what it takes to like put things together and make them look cool. Uh, so that has a lot of facets of things that I've never been exposed to before. I've never made videos or anything like that until that moment. But uh, the other hobby is probably just my cat. I like to take my cat on walks outside. That's my thing. And everyone's like, is that a cat in North Carolina? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> Love that. So your cat actually will walk on the leash outside. She walks me, but you know, it, it, yes, we, we work together. <laughs> well, that's cool. We, um, I have a cat and they do, they don't like the leash. So we're working on it. Oh, but... <laughs> um, yeah, it takes time. Yeah, and so uh, kind of, yeah, I'm kind of just flip-flopping back and forth between like your research and you. This question is more about um, like the work you're interested in. And they're asking, um, do you also find like, do you also like look into bacteria and other substances in the water besides microplastics or like, yeah. Ooh. Um, I haven't been doing that recently. Usually I'll do, if some, if I need like bacterial analysis, I'll do a collaboration with like another environmental engineer. Um, because I think we kind of, when we get into our programs, we kind of choose our path. Mm -hmm. Are we an organic chemist? Are we an inorganic chemist? Which just means like, I'm looking for metals like mercury or like arsenic or cadmium, like things that are really toxic, but are really well known. Um, or you go into like the biology route of like understanding uh, bacteria that is antibiotic resistant. Uh, and that's something that's like really growing in the field of like understanding these superbugs that are coming around. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely people that do that. And then like even just going straight into air pollution questions of like how much is being released and like climate change and all that good stuff or, uh, or just specifically waste treatment, like wastewater treatment. How do we make it more efficient? 
how do we in developing countries or just previously not colonized um, countries uh, help them deal with their you know their waste and and make it as efficient as cheap as possible so there's always people that that kind of do that kind of work as well to just do the entire conversion process of like maybe even making energy out of uh you know their their sewage um so that's a route but we usually stick to our little lanes and then we collaborate to make the whole puzzle fit together really nicely okay. uh and then a question a little bit about your job i think i think this would be really cool could you in like a non-pandemic day what would you what would your like research day look like like what kind of stuff do you work with um and yeah like just a basic like give us your schedule i think that'd be cool Ooh, cool okay um pre-pandemic it actually depends on what year of my phd we're talking about years one and two were i'm going to class and maybe like two or three days out of the week i'm in the lab uh these past few years it's mostly i'm i'm in the lab pretty much full time sometimes even on the weekends or nights that's not always the fun part, but uh, <clears throat> I can tell you what I did this morning before I got here. Okay. Uh, I, I, you know, I show up to lab, sanitize because of COVID and, you know, mask up, but uh, I'll do like an extraction of uh, sediment. I will take a time point of my water uh, leachates, like I'll put plastic in water for a certain amount of time. So I need to take a small portion of that water for analysis. I will um, do extractions of plastic where I take uh, the small piece of plastic and put it in a solvent like methanol and see how much comes out in that methanol solvent. Or <clears throat> trying to think of other, other projects or even sampling. I, ha I do have to go do sampling every once in a while for different projects. One of them is a mesocosm where it's like this large box, it's like 12 feet by like six feet uh, wide, and it's filled with uh, water, sediment, plants, fish, snails, and it's in the middle of the forest. So I'll drive out there and I'll go get my water sample and my sediment sample and process the water. So usually the water is really murky. So I'll filter it um, and get rid of all the gunk out of it and sometimes the microplastics that are in the water. Um, and then I'll process it where I load it onto a solid phase extraction column and then, you know, concentrate that down. So usually like plenty of like benchtop work of taking, of taking samples, of um, extracting compounds out of samples and uh, concentrating them down. And then I'll also have plenty of days where I'm in the mass spectrometry room, all the fun tech instruments uh and so that those days i'm you know cleaning the instruments i am calibrating them for my runs i'm making sure that they have all the solvents and the samples that i need that are already prepared and uh just kind of running them on these mass specs and these uh these instruments to just identify the chemicals that are present and then even sometimes quantify them with what are called calibration curves and these are just vials with known concentrations of a compound like BPA and they increase with each vial. And so you run them and it'll give you a response ratio where if you have a lot of it, it's really high and it'll make, you know, with all of these little vials, it'll make a perfect line. And when you run your sample, you figure out where your sample fits on that line and you predict how much is present in your water. So yeah. 
Well, and then, um, do you use any type of like specific uh, microscopes to look at plat microplastics? Mm -hmm. Like, you can't see those with the naked eye. Yeah. So one thing that we do in the plastics world is we have to, whenever we make a paper or any kind of research work, we have to prove what plastic we're working with. Mm -hmm. And so that requires usually two different instruments or, or three. Um, it's called the four, uh, FTIR. I think it's like Fourier transform infrared uh, detector. And that'll tell you the surface of whatever you're analyzing. And it usually gives you like a weird little spectra. And that'll say, okay, this spectra looks like a, a, a polyethylene or an epoxy and you match it to it. <clears throat> and then even Ramon is another tool to do the same thing. And so you, yeah, usually you can just like put the microplastic in there and then turn it on and it'll tell you what the spectra looks like. Uh, for another like actual microscope is the scanning electron microscope uh, where you just kind of like put it really tiny microplastics on like a tiny pin and you put it in there and it'll uh, throw electrons at the sample and they will bounce back and they will show you exactly what the image of the particle is on that tiny pin. And so that's, a, that's another great way to try and characterize what your microplastic looks like. And like most microplastics are not spherical, uh, which is, you know, they're not perfect uh, spheres or shapes. They're, they're jagged, they're like stringy. They, they have plenty of different aspects to them that change their properties and like how much is being released. So it's why it's so difficult to really understand the microplastic problem. Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing a video on all, like microplastics is like you picture something and then there's all these different, they look so different and it's, they're really hard to categorize. I can imagine that being difficult. Oh yeah, and then don't, don't even get into like the microfibers, like those are a little bit even more difficult because they're just like little strings that like wind around each other, like. <laughs> yeah, and um, so we've got a couple, uh, oh, here, this one first, and then we'll do some cool random questions. Um, someone's asking okay. the topic of your PhD thesis, if you'd be open to sharing it with us. The topic is the fate and transformation of plastic additives uh, within our aquatic environments. And so that includes like our oceans and our freshwater environments. So that's just identifying compounds that are in, that came from a plastic and seeing how they change. Because when you expose a chemical to water, air, light, um, even like turbulence, they, that can cause, or, or temperature, uh, that can cause a, a whole different host of chemical transformations to that same thing. And that transformation can either make it less toxic or more toxic to our environment or to fish. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's a process of understanding all of those chemical compounds in a variety of aquatic environments in different plastic types or even microplastics. Uh, and then this is like a fun question. What is the weirdest thing you found in the water at your field sites? Oh, we, ooh, you know, there's like this like weird green goop that was like growing on our snails. And I was like, what is happening to these snails? Um, that was probably like the thing that I was like, ew, I don't want to touch it. What is that? <laughs> Did you figure out what it was or? We still don't know. I think they just like 
caught something like one of the boxes just like got infected with this weird you know invasive algae mm -hmm. a lot of people have also found like really interesting spiders that are like huge and like yellow and and like black in the in there and then a lot of people have seen snakes around the the mesoclasm boxes thank goodness i did not when i was there <laughs> i would have never came back um <laughs> And yeah, could you describe, so like every, a mesocosm box, like what kind of, like what is that and kind of what is, why do you have to use something like that for your work? Yeah, these uh, mesocosm boxes are a part of what Duke's called SAINT, the Center for Environmental Implications for Nanotechnology, including nanoplastics, nanoparticles, uh, microplastics. Uh, and so they have, they constructed like 20 of these boxes in the middle of the forest to mimic like a small environment. It's supposed to mimic like a freshwater stream or lake. And instead of you dosing the entire lake with mercury and seeing what happens to all the fish, you can do it on a smaller scale. Like it's a little bit bigger than, a, it's, it's definitely bigger than an aquarium. And it's probably a little bit more realistic because it's actually in the middle of the forest. So it's just these little mini environments that you can dose with whatever contaminant of your interest and study them over a year or two years, um, or even try to remediate them over time with different compounds or samplers. Cool. So yeah, they're pretty big. They're, they're, you know, 12 feet by six feet and they have everything that you could possibly want to sample if you're interested in. Um, if you want to know what's happening in the, to the plants, if they're uptaking your contaminant, you can take plant samples. If you want to know what's happening in the water over time, you take those. Or if you're like, I know my chemical is going to stay in the sediment, you just take sediment samples and you can analyze like the microbial populations and how they've changed over time. Uh, so there's there's tons of options and even looking at like behavior of fish, there's tons of fish in the in the actual mesocosm box. So you can see if there there's like distinct behavioral changes or changes to like the population of fish. Um, so mesocosms are a really great opportunity for research to understand like larger scale processes because they're very complicated. Um, but they can be more informative than just putting plastic in water and like leaving it by itself. There's no other factors influencing that. Gotcha. Yeah, really cool. Um, and then you don't have to pollute like a natural environment to know what happens. So I think that's perfect. exactly. <laughs> um, and here's another fun question. So if you could save like one type of environment, like if you could like magically make it like restored or something, what type of environment do you think you would save? Like, I'm wondering if we're talking like large scale, like do I just go straight ocean, like all of the ocean? <laughs> I, yeah, I was thinking like um, the, the specific word is blank, but like, uh, like, this, like the little diagram, like Whitaker's diagram and they have those like different types of ecosystems. Oh, you mean like the tundra versus yeah, yeah. like the um, safari, oh. I know, I should remember what that is too, but I've been out of class for a long time this summer. <laughs> Gosh, I'd have to think about the one that's probably like the most in danger right now. Um, geez, I would, I probably want to save like the tundra area, like the ice where all the glacier ice cores are melting. Like I'd want, I want to preserve that even though we're humans are not, you know, concentrated there. It's still like a precious part of our earth. And like, if that starts melting, 
water's rising everywhere. Like all of our coastal cities are in, in danger because of it. Mm-hmm. I think the Bay Area, like San Francisco airport is going to be underwater along with the Oakland airport if like we do nothing about the melting glacier ice caps. So that's probably the place I would probably try and save and like make sure that it was restored. But that's more of a climate change question and I guess less well, it's still chemistry. It's still oil and gas. Um, but uh, maybe like a chemistry site that I'd like to fix or remediate. I think the Gulf of Mexico, um, because of all of those like oil and gas companies that sometimes, you know, like the BP gas spill, like they are, there's a lot of chemicals being released and emitted into the Gulf of Mexico. And that's that's kind of harmful for a lot of populations of uh, ocean and fish species and even humans. A lot of humans live on the Gulf, uh, along the Gulf of Mexico. So yeah, I think that'd be a, another area for like a chemical side of remediation. Yeah, cool. No, it's a cool question. It was like, what would you save? I like it. Right. Um, <laughs> someone's asking some more questions about uh, the mesocosm boxes. Would you, what kind of chemicals have you added to the, to the box? Yeah, so my project, that's actually my third chapter uh, for my PhD, we added microplastics, two different kinds of polypropylene and a polyurethane to the box to see where do the microplastics go, pardon me, over time, and then like what chemicals are being released from the microplastics. So is is it a chemical? Kind of, but uh, other people I know have put uh, mercury, in the boxes, I know that they've done uh, what's called nanoceria. The, a lot of the, the projects were geared towards what are called nano. So things that are like 10 to the minus nine like meters, like they're so small for the naked eye that you can barely see them. Um, and so they really wanted to understand if things are so small that they can get into your bloodstream, like what's gonna happen in our environment? Like, where are they gonna go? How are they gonna interact with like our plants? How are they gonna interact with uh, different species of fish? Um, you know, are they gonna like concentrate in certain certain areas? So that's what the the original intention behind a lot of these mesocosm boxes were, were to dose them with these really tiny uh, metals uh, in, into the boxes. Gotcha, yeah, cool. Uh, and then another question is like, if yeah, what is like the most important fundamental or like basic from your field that you think like everyone should know? Hmm. Or your research, if your field is too broad. Jeez, jeez, let's see, let's see, let's see. Uh, fundamentals. Mm, like I am like I'm. I think I'm really biased as a chemist. I I'd say like chemical transformations, like understanding those, um, and how like certain kinds of chemicals are 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 gonna become like more harmful or less harmful in in like when you're exposed to light, or certain chemicals are not gonna stay in water. They're gonna go into air versus like going into our sediment or our bloodstream and accumulating in our bodies. I think those kinds of concepts are things that I find like fundamental for this field for in my in my specific lane uh and what was the other thing that I was thinking of with with the chemistry um we talked about partitioning and transforming um maybe even like disinfection I think for general like general people like understanding you know why like water is still not as clean as we think it is or the fact that like 
we put tap water in bottled water. So there's, there's really no difference except for that you're now getting plastic leachate as well in your bottle, bottled water. Um, but like understanding like when people have to go through cleaning your drinking water, there's a lot of steps to it. And so for an environmental engineer specifically, the fundamentals you need to know are how to clean water and how to clean wastewater before you're emitting it into like our streams and our lakes. Because most places in our world, they, they don't do the full process. They don't take what comes out of your sink in your toilet and convert it directly into drinking water. That's only really in places where they have a lot of money and technology to do that. Like Singapore and Orange County, California are like the best examples of where that is like really well implemented and really effective because they have water issues, um, water quantity issues. But uh, for environmental engineers, you really have to understand how to take that water that has just been cleaned uh, from waste and emitted into the stream. And then two blocks down, you take that stream water and you pull it out and you clean it and you disinfect it and you make sure that it's ready to get distributed. So I think understanding those processes of cleaning water is probably big for environmental engineers. Gotcha. Um, and then do you like, do you have to wear any specific gear when you're doing your research? They're asking about like protecting your skin or your eyes or your lungs, like when you're working with these chemicals. Definitely. Uh, for in general, usually wear a lab coat. I'm almost always wearing some form of like pants, usually cover most, most of my legs. Um, but uh, yeah, lab coat is key. Wearing safety glasses wearing gloves and then um, you also add a different layer of gloves as well depending on if like i'm working with liquid nitrogen i have to wear cryo gloves uh, to protect myself and then um, when i'm working with different kinds of chemicals i have to read the chemical safety data sheet to know uh, am i allowed to open this in uh, the open air mm -hmm. or am i supposed to go to the fume hood when i open it so that it sucks all of the air out because sometimes I work with things like chloroform and you definitely can't do that in the open air. You will, that is knockout gas. Like if you've seen any kidnapping movie, like that's what they're using to cover people's faces. Um, so if I work with that, like I have to understand like, okay, like making sure I'm careful with my gloves and like if it touches like my gloves, I have to throw it away immediately because it can seep into my skin. Um, and for lungs, the, the question of like inhaling things, like if I'm working with carbon nanotubes, wearing a mask, so that's also like a nanoparticle that can act like asbestos. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, just like being very careful with each chemical that I'm interacting with, like the BPA, we know that that's very harmful for the human body. So being very careful if it touched, if I you know get anything in my glove, like immediately taking it off and putting a new glove on. Um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of safety aspects because we're trying to investigate harmful things in our environment that inevitably can be harmful to us when we're working with it. But if we're safe about it and we, you know, make sure that we really read up on what we're interacting with, it's, you know, it's, it's not as difficult or as scary as, you know, it may seem. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Great questions that everyone had. Um, unfortunately, we have our last three like Skype scientist questions, so we can't get everyone's questions answered. <laughs> But I'm assuming if you visit Amari's YouTube channel, you could probably post some questions under different videos. So absolutely. That'd be awesome. Um, and then, yeah, the three Skype scientist questions we have. So the first one is, um, is there one thing that you wish that you'd been asked today? Uh, whew. Wish I'd been asked. 
<laughs> maybe like what's my favorite kind of plastic I don't know <laughs> or um what are what's an advice I would give to someone looking into graduate school um I because I think that I think that's kind of important like how do you do a PhD like is it worth it but I, I think the most important thing I'd like to tell people is that like it takes a lot of persistence and you have to really be passionate about what you're working on uh so with if you got those two in hand and you you know what you want like you can get a PhD done it's it's not an easy track to do but it's definitely worth it yeah no, that's awesome um because I, I agree I think yeah, once you're in grad school, like there's lots of people hopefully that can help you and you can learn a lot of new things, but you, yeah, you really have to have the drive that you want to be there. That's like the yeah. big piece. Um, Absolutely. And then the second question, a fun fact about uh, microplastics or about environmental engineering that you'd want to share. About microplastics. Um, ooh, one of the biggest inputs of microplastics come from our tires hmm. and that is one that I have no idea how we're going to solve but we have whenever we get in our cars and we start driving we are using synthetic tires and they when uh, your tires go bald that means all those microplastics just got emitted uh, so and they can be harmful to certain environments like our salmon in the Pacific North Northwest they found that after rain events from uh, off the road runoff was causing uh, like a decline in the species of coho salmon be, that were directly linked to tire particles. So that's an interesting microplastic fact that we don't have a solution for, at least that I know of, uh, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess non-COVID times, COVID's really thrown a wrench in things like take the bus or try to take public transit so there's less tires on the road, but sure. yeah, I'm not sure, that's crazy. <laughs> Um, and then the last thing is super open. A fun fact about anything that you want to share to wrap up our session. Uh, fun fact. Um, I'm like obsessed with like sci-fi fantasy books. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what else is there? What's your favorite? Do you have a favorite author or? Um, like, I forget his name. Name of the Wind is a really good series. Um, and I don't know what else will be there too. Um, yeah, I like plastic, I guess. <laughs> no, I totally understand that. I also think it's really cool. And we don't know what's going on in the water. It's really hard to, like, I think terrestrial systems, you can see what's happening, but in the water, it's really hard to know what's going on. So that's really cool. Like what you're yeah. doing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm no. happy to know there's another scientist on their way to do it. Trying <laughs> a very different path. But yeah, I think um, for everyone watching, I feel like plastic work is really new and people are really trying to understand like what's going on. Um, so there's a lot of open spots, I feel like, in this type of research for any field. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially human health effects. I think everyone wants to know how does that impact me? And we, we don't know. We have suspicions that it's not great, but we, we have yet to prove it. And that's because studies on humans are not easy. Who wants to feed microplastics <laughs> to a human? <laughs> Who wants to eat the microplastics too? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
So <laughs> lots of unopened questions. <laughs> true. Well, yeah, really cool. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. Uh, hopefully everyone can go check out your YouTube channel too and learn more about your work. Um, and thanks again, Aaron, for being on Translating. We appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, Amari, thank you so much. It was awesome. Uh, thank you both, Maddie and Aaron. Appreciate it. Thank you all for, for having me. Yeah, yeah. I hope everyone has a good rest of your day. Um, stay safe. Yep. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye.